Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. Today is Tuesday, November 7th. I'm Stephen Overly. The main tech attraction in Washington today is the testimony from a former Meta executive, Arturo Behar. He's accused the company of downplaying content on its platforms that is harmful to children. Bayer spent several years as an engineering director at Facebook and returned to the company in 2019 as a consultant. His job essentially involved surveying users about their experience with issues like unwanted sexual advances and harassment. And he found both were more common than Meta was admitting publicly. Behar first reported those findings to company executives. Last week, he revealed them in a Wall Street Journal expose. And today, he'll take them to the Senate Judiciary Committee, where he is the sole witness at a subcommittee hearing. My colleague Rebecca Kern will be on the ground covering that hearing, so be sure to follow her coverage. But Bayer is not the first meta whistleblower. Actually, his story mirrors another former employee who raised alarm about online content, Francis Haugen. It's unclear whether Behar will make the same splash. He is the second high-profile whistleblower to now come forward. And two years have passed since Haugen made that original testimony. But he is coming forward at a pivotal moment. Just two weeks ago, Meta was sued by more than 30 state attorneys general who are accusing the company of creating social media apps that are addictive and harmful, and then misleading the public about it. That legal filing mentions Behar by name, multiple times. It's a case that Meta's critics compare to past sweeping lawsuits against cigarette makers and opioid manufacturer Purdue Pharma. Of course, Meta has defended itself against these accusations. It points to more than 30 features and tools that it says make social media safer for minors. Those include things like limits on the content kids can see and automatic privacy settings for their accounts. I reached out to Meta's D.C. spokesperson about the latest accusations, and the gist, as they publicly put it, is that they're not the revelation they're being made out to be. He told me Meta has long asked its users about their experience on its platforms, and that those perceptions do not necessarily reflect how prevalent harmful content actually is. So, on the show today, I spoke with the original Meta whistleblower, Frances Haugen. She explains what Behar is in for as he steps into the spotlight and how his revelations further build the case against Meta. This new whistleblower has come forward now raising concerns about how Meta has you know, handled content, specifically content aimed at minors, has anything stood out to you from from what uh, this new whistleblower has said that is new or, or unexpected? If we were to look back in time at the tobacco class action lawsuit, at the opiate class action lawsuit, you know, other large uh, lawsuits where we're alleging consumer protection issues, it is much, much easier to prove that a company lied than it is to litigate individual points of fact right? It's like, should they have known that they shouldn't have done X, Y, Z to their cigarettes? Well, they shouldn't have found out what was going on with their cigarettes and then lied to the public about it. In the case of opiates, like they shouldn't have spent a huge amount of effort to portray that opiates were non-addictive when they had basically no evidence uh, 
proclaiming that. And they were getting reports coming in saying, actually, there's huge addiction problems. In the case of Facebook, um, specifically the class action lawsuit of, you know, 41 AGs against Facebook or 33 AGs in one case with the eight, you know, individual state consumer protection cases. You know, the, the core of those cases is not, should you not be allowed to have addictive algorithms or should you not try to keep people online as long as you can, or should you not, you know, uh, knowingly hurt kids? It's that you shouldn't do those things and then tell the public you're not doing them. And the thing that's super interesting about this whistleblower is this whistleblower is extremely senior. Because he had been there for so long, he had direct relationships with executives. He ran studies with Facebook's users where he asked them, what is your experience of the platform? Those numbers came back 100 times as high as the, met, the, the way that Facebook had been measuring it before. So basically before Facebook had said, you know, I bet we can describe or define what is bad content. And then if, uh, you know, we'll go scan for that bad content, then that's how bad the platform is. The whistleblower took a slightly different approach. He actually asked users, have you experienced uh, an unwanted sexual advance? Remember, he's talking to kids under the age of 16 here. Right. Have you experienced an unwanted sexual advance? Have you been the victim of, of hate, uh, either witnessed or been the victim of hate speech? Have you had someone go and try to hurt you, you know, either by doxing you, intimidating you, bullying you, whatever, um, in the last seven days? Like We're not talking the last month, the last year ever, saying the last week. And the numbers came back horrifyingly high, right? So one in 18, you know, girls under the age of 16 said they'd received an unwanted sexual advance. Um, uh, one in, I think it's like 20, said they, someone had actively tried to hurt them. Um, you know, the, like really bad numbers. Um, and when he took these to the executives, he got told basically, if you want to publish these internally, you have to frame them as hypotheticals. Like you cannot distribute this data internally. You need to say, you know, hypothetically, if someone were to receive this, uh, like an unwanted sexual advance, what should Facebook do? Um, and this was going on as uh, the Wall Street Journal was reporting on the Facebook files. And so it's one of these interesting questions of like, this feels like a smoking gun. Like reading through the filing, the AGs brought to, brought to the courts, you know, what is it, two weeks ago now? This is what was alluded to. Like Arturo is named by name in that filing. But it's also clear there's a lot of other whistleblowers in there. It's not just one person. It's quite a stream of people providing context. Um, and I think it's going to be really amazing to see how damning is this filing once we get an unredacted copy of it. You know, you mentioned that he sort of had this main line to some of the company's senior executives. And obviously he brought those, you know, he brought these concerns to them. Correct me if this is wrong. I, I don't recall that you brought your concerns to, to those executives or, or had that same access? I definitely did not have that access. Why did you, I guess, go a different route? And are you surprised mm. because he had this access that there wasn't a different outcome? Mm. So it's interesting to see why was it he had that access. So, um, you know, over the last, I would say, five years, uh, the upper reaches of Facebook have become more insular, right? The, the turnover at the company is extremely fast these days. So when I left, I was more senior than like 85% of the, of the, the full-time employees. Hmm. Um, and I was there for two years, right? Um, Arturo was, one of, was either the first integrity person at Facebook or one of the first. And so that meant he worked at Facebook when it was a much, much smaller company. He stayed there for a very long time. 
Um, and so it meant that he, and because he would have been, would have been in that first little group of people who worked on trust and safety, you know, he had a long history of having meetings with senior executives. Um, by the time I joined, uh, my manager regularly had those kinds of meetings with senior executives, but he had 20 reports, you know, 23 reports. I was outside the, the realm of relevance because I was working on a, a, a problem space that was not really prioritized, right? Like we had known since 2016 or 2017 that ethnic, uh, you know, ethnic violence was happening because of misinformation and like weaponization of Facebook. The fact that my project still existed in 2019 because it was considered like too hard for the main misinformation team, which focused on like third party fact checking to work on. It's just a different set of priorities. Got it. You, you you mentioned that he's sort of going to need a lot of support right now. I wonder if you, you know, you've one of the few people who's sort of been in the position that he is, right, having sort of raised this alarm, heading into the first of what's probably many hearings, you know, as kind of the star witness. What do you think he is experiencing right now? Mm. It's inter- interesting for me because, like, you know, I I had the the fortune of having about three weeks between when the first article was published in the Wall Street Journal and when I actually stepped into, into you know, uh, the public's eye. And so uh, I, I feel like what was good about that was we had time for consensus to begin to, be, to begin to form, right? That, you know, it had been a huge news cycle for weeks and weeks. And so when I actually came forward, it was like, oh, and now we understand like why, why she did this. And I, I think I'm, I'm really intrigued at how the um, hearing will go because, you know, we don't have the same in-depth shared context that we did when, when, I, when I testified. And um, I, I just don't know how it's going to play out. Like, it's, it's, it, it, his first exposure to the world will be that testimony. It won't be, uh, you know, this late, like, this, this clear, like, by the time I came forward, I think there had been six or seven articles in the Wall Street Journal, like long articles. And so like the idea that there was, this was not just smoke, there was fire. Um, I think everyone was willing to accept that. You know, with him appearing before the world now, so to speak, although obviously he he wasn't featured in the Wall Street Journal, but uh, what's the scrutiny that comes from that, the retaliation Mm. that potentially comes from that? You know, you've you've walked that road. So I I guess, what was your experience? You know, I've, I've not been directly involved in his prep I hope he's getting sufficient counsel on how to think about like, like people inside of tech have one way of looking at things. You know, you take for granted that you can act with a certain level of freedom, right? And when you move to the outside, uh, you realize there's a lot of emotions people have about the actions that people in tech take. You know, there's a lot of emotional valence around things like content moderation. And, uh, you know, there's a very delicate line I think we can walk where we talk about the design of systems and not like taking down bad pieces of content. I'm hoping real hard, I'll I'll watch very closely, that he doesn't inadvertently kind of step on landmines, right? Um, Because we live in a culture, especially in the United States, where people want to make news into footballs in the culture wars. Mm. And it's very, very easy to say a sentence that you think means one thing, and it gets memified into the culture wars in another way. 
did you feel like that happened to you? Like, were you sort of, were you, you know, yeah. just ill-equipped yeah. for that, I guess? So it's interesting. So I, I feel like I was very, very lucky because I came out and said, hey, I think the public has been misled about content moderation, right? Like the core of my complaint was content moderation is basically a lie. And, and to be fair, a, a pretty big part of Arturo's assessment is that too, right? He's coming in and saying, Facebook is saying they, they take down everything. And in reality, they don't, you know, they're not touching 100x or like 99% of the experiences people are having. Um, I, you know, my complaint was when we focus on content moderation, we leave behind all but the most, like the largest languages. And the places that have conflict are often linguistically diverse and kind of peripheral, right? They almost by definition could get left behind. And we saw that happen with Ethiopia, right? You know, Ethiopia had 105 million people, um, uh, 95 dialects, six major language families. And at the height of the violence in 2020 and 2021, Facebook had, you know, any, and by any, maybe one or two content moderation systems in two of those six language families, right? Um, And so I, I felt like I was quite lucky because I ended up kind of like threading that needle, Hmm. in the culture war. And it, what was interesting for me was uh, the, uh, it wasn't until December. So it took, it took like two months for like Facebook's uh, PR team. And, and this is well-documented in the Wall Street Journal to begin uh, really spinning a campaign that I was just an advocate for censorship, which is quite ironic given, given the rest of my testimony. Um, uh, but when I went before the house, like that was everything people want to talk about was like censorship, 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 right. instead of like transparency. And, you know, there's probably ways we can design these systems that we all feel better about. Right. And you quickly find yourself in the middle of a politicized conversation, without a doubt. Um, yeah. well, one other thing I've just been curious about, because, again, I, I do think you have a very unique experience here that now Arturo will share since you sort of came forward, spoke out, had your testimonies, mm-hmm. I know you've you've written a book. You've started this nonprofit beyond the screen, right? Mm-hmm. Focused yep. on some of these issues. I guess my question is kind of to what extent has like being the safety whistleblower become an identity, you know, if you will, right? Mm. It's it's I, I'm sure a big moment in your career, certainly. But to what extent is it an, an yeah. identity now for you? Well, I always like to say to people like like I, I had I had this really great moment. I don't know, maybe four months ago where I got introduced for a radio show and I didn't get introduced as a whistleblower. I got introduced as an advocate for transparency and accountability in technology. Hmm. Um, and I was like, ha the first one, you know, first of many, um, because I, you know, the work that we're doing with Beyond the Screen. So I, I had a book come out this summer. It's called uh, The Power of One. And I talk about like, how did Facebook get to where it is today? Right. And a, a pretty core part of how that happened was I think that there were in general well-intentioned people, but there were no feedback loops. Hmm. Right. Like the um, in a world where you have to report your economic bottom line, but you don't have to report your social bottom line, your your societal bottom line. Um, you can take from the social side of the balance sheet and prop up the economic side. And the, you know, desire to cheat, like it's, it's just too tempting. You know, it's too tempting to, uh, you know, cut a few corners here and there, especially if you're having like a harder quarter. Um, and so I, the, the thing I've been focused on over the last, I'd say 18 months has not been the testimony for my whistleblowing. It's been the need for transparency of what I call opaque technologies, 
or opaque systems. So generative AI, for example, um, is another form of an opaque system. Mm. Because just like Facebook, it shows each of us a different thing. It runs away on a data center where we can't look at it, we can't inspect it. And we have to start thinking about how do we govern opaque systems differently than we managed you know, the economy of 75 years ago. Like This is not a factory that produces products that we can all buy. This is not a newspaper where any of us can go get a copy of the newspaper. Um, this is, these are all dynamic things that need different processes of governance. And uh, I hope 10 years from now, that's the thing I'm known for, um, because that's the, that's the fight that we actually have to win. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. From a policy perspective, if you could craft an ideal policy that a state or the federal government could implement to actually get at these content moderation concerns, harms to kids online, what exactly would that look like? What are the pieces that need to fall into place for that to actually happen? Hmm. So I think the DSA is an interesting model. So the DSA says, hey, uh, very large platforms are different than, say, your blog, a small site. Um, there's not tons of them in the European Union. I think there's like 17 or 19 that count as very large platforms. That means 10% or more of Europeans use the platforms. You know, and they say like, hey, if you know there's a harm to your product, you need to tell us about it. And you tell us how you're going to try to reduce that harm. You prevent it, mitigate it, whatever. You need to answer our questions when we ask you. Um, you know, like the only place in the world where anyone has a right to ask questions and get data is, the, is Europe right now, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. That's kind of a key feature of an opaque system. Mm-hmm. You don't have the right to, you, there's no consent really to use because you're not informed. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's a model that's really flexible because, uh, you know, new harms are going to be discovered at different points. You know, having safe harbor for researchers allows researchers to ask awkward questions, find new harms. Um, Because remember, there's going to be new products. You know, we we don't want to litigate this form of social media and then miss out on TikTok or litigate TikTok and miss out on the metaverse, miss out on games. I think the third thing is, uh, um, I think going in there and saying, hey, yes, the gold standard for data access is raw researcher access, right? Like let people ask robust questions. But one of the things we're working on at Beyond the Screen is something we call minimum viable queries. Hmm. So you know how I said before, what's the amount of data we need to ask for to understand the magnitude of each harm? You know, what's the data we need to ask for to understand, are you pulling the levers that exist? You know, that, that's, a, that's usually summary data, you know, aggregate data. It means you're not violating individual people's privacy. Um, that's something that we should be able to get a lot faster. It's a lot of, a lot of data Facebook has already put in dashboards. Um, and it's one of those things where we can either argue for years on how to safely do researcher access, or we could pass laws today that say, hey, you know, for in our, in our standard of care, we have, I think, 37 or 38 harms to kids. 
let's just start out. And for those 38 harms, you have to give us data on magnitude and you have to give us data on, are you trying to fix these things? That's a law that I don't think anyone would argue with. Your testimony in 2021 obviously garnered a lot of attention, uh, you know, uh, inspired a lot mm-hmm. of calls to action. Um, you know, the lawmakers introduced legislation after you testified. But in the two years since, you know, Congress hasn't yet to pass any regulations or, or a law that looks like what you, you just described. Are you surprised that there hasn't been any legislation that has actually come hmm. about, you know, tangibly as, as a result of either your testimony or, or elevating these issues to that level? Well, when the attorneys general brought their lawsuit against Purdue Pharma for opiates, the situation there was was quite was quite bad. Like, I would say it was worse than what's happening with kids right now. Right. Like, it's true that children are dying. They're not dying at the scale that people were ODing from opiates. And yet we still had to have a lawsuit solve it and not a law. I think in the United States, there are issues that are messy, that inspire a lot of emotions, and it can become very difficult if you don't have an effective um, means of legislating to be able to negotiate all those kind of compromises, right? It's, it's a lot of back and forth. It's, it's a lot of work. And it's very clear from looking at the complexity of the filing that the attorney general has submitted that like, they have thought very, conf- uh, uh, very carefully about this. Um, they're trying to be uh, understated. Um, this is an issue that's very easy to make extreme statements on, but I, you can tell that they're trying to stay within the letter of the evidence they have. Um, and so I'm, I'm not surprised that it's taken time. One of the things to credit Europe with is Europe had been trying to pass the Digital Services Act, which passed last year, um, for four or five years before um, they did, right? Hmm. They, they explicitly said when I visited in May of last year, um, after they had finally finished being negotiated, they said, uh, we're thankful for the information in your disclosures because like, we've been trying to pass this for four or five years. And now we see the need to not just rely on self-disclosure, right? Um, and uh, in the United States, we don't experience the same magnitude of harm, right? It, it may, it, this may seem shocking to most people. We use, as English speakers, the cleanest, most manicured version of Facebook in the world, hmm. right? Uh, Europe has lots of languages that have next to no safety systems, right? Uh, I, I, I won the Norwegian American Heritage Award um, a year, I think a year ago. So now I feel I have to always ask, won't someone please think about the Norwegians? Um, but like, you know, I went and talked to a bunch of Norwegian journalists and the stories they told me were really shocking, right? Uh, you know, when, speaking of teenagers harming themselves, you know, um, a journalist told me she had found uh, around a 500, 550 um, account cluster on Instagram that was all teenage girls that was glorifying suicide, mm. uh, glorifying self-harm. Content that was very clearly violating Instagram's policies, you know, like a black and white picture of train tracks and like going off in the distance and like the caption, like today is a great day to die. Um, and they gave a thousand of those posts, like they printed them out and gave them to a Facebook comms person in Scandinavia, policy person. And the person was like, I can't do anything with these. You have to go report them. So they went and reported them and came back like a month later. And all of them were still up. And I'm guessing why that is, is, you know, there's maybe 5 million, 6 million Norwegian speakers in the world. Like, they need people asking, won't someone please think of the Norwegians? Um, the, and, and as a result, they, they probably don't have any moderators at Facebook that can even assess a complaint that something is self-harm. Hmm. And so 
uh, Europe paid much higher costs. And that's just the reality. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a good day. Yeah. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Politico Tech reporter Rebecca Kern contributed to today's episode, and she'll be covering today's hearing. So look out for her reporting on Politico.com. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. I'll see you back here tomorrow.